Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Depression has often been blamed on low levels of serotonin in the brain. That answer is insufficient, but alternatives are coming into view and changing our understanding of the disease. That's next. Space travel depends on clever math. Find unexplored solar systems in Quantum Magazine's new daily math game, Hyperjumps. Hyperjumps challenges you to find simple number combinations to get your rocket from one exoplanet to the next. Spoiler alert, there's always more than one way to win. Test your astral arithmetic at hyperjumps.quantumagazine.org. People often think that they know what causes chronic depression. Surveys show that more than 80% of the public blames a chemical imbalance in the brain. That idea is widespread in pop psychology and cited in research papers and medical textbooks. The unbalanced brain chemical in question is serotonin, an important neurotransmitter with fabled feel-good effects. Serotonin helps regulate systems in the brain that control everything from body temperature and sleep to sex drive and hunger. For decades, it's also been touted as the pharmaceutical MVP for fighting depression. Widely prescribed medications like Prozac or the generic fluoxetine are designed to treat chronic depression by raising serotonin levels. Yet the causes of depression go far beyond serotonin deficiency. Clinical studies have repeatedly concluded that the role of serotonin in depression has been overstated. Indeed, the entire premise of the chemical imbalance theory may be wrong, despite the relief that Prozac seems to bring to many patients. A literature review that appeared in Molecular Psychiatry in July of 2022 was the latest and perhaps loudest death knell for the serotonin hypothesis, at least in its simplest form. An international team of scientists led by Joanna Moncrief of University College London screened 361 papers from six areas of research and carefully evaluated 17 of them. They found no convincing evidence that lower levels of serotonin caused or were even associated with depression. People with depression didn't reliably seem to have less serotonin activity than people without the disorder. Experiments in which researchers artificially lowered the serotonin levels of volunteers didn't consistently cause depression. Genetic studies also seemed to rule out any connection between genes affecting serotonin levels and depression, even when the researchers tried to consider stress as a possible cofactor. Taylor Brond is a clinical neuroscientist and postdoctoral research fellow at the Black Dog Institute in Australia. He wasn't involved in the new study, but says it's comprehensive and well done. And I think the conclusions are what most people in the academic community would say, not surprising. Also very kind of confronting, because if you were still of the opinion that it was simply a serotonin deficiency of them, it's pretty damning. The realization that serotonin deficits by themselves probably don't cause depression has left scientists wondering what does. The evidence suggests that there may not be a simple answer. In fact, leading neuropsychiatric researchers are starting to rethink what depression might be. 
The focus on serotonin in depression began with a tuberculosis drug. In the 1950s, doctors started prescribing ipronizid, a compound developed to target lung-dwelling mycobacterium tuberculosis bacteria. The drug wasn't particularly good for treating tuberculosis infections, but it did bless some patients with an unexpected and pleasant side effect. Gerald Sanacora, a clinical psychiatrist and the director of the depression research program at Yale University, explains. Their lung function and everything else wasn't getting much better, but their mood tended to improve. Perplexed by this outcome, researchers began studying how ipronizid and related drugs worked in the brains of rats and rabbits. They discovered that the drugs blocked the animal's body from absorbing compounds called amines. These include serotonin, a chemical that carries messages between nerve cells in the brain. Several prominent psychologists, including the late clinicians Alec Koppen and Joseph Schildkraut, seized on the idea that depression could be caused by a chronic deficiency of serotonin in the brain. The serotonin hypothesis of depression went on to inform decades of drug development and neuroscientific research. During the late 1980s, it led to the introduction of Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, or SSRI drugs, like Prozac. These drugs raised levels of serotonin activity by slowing down the neurotransmitter's absorption by neurons. Today, the serotonin hypothesis is still the explanation most often given to patients with depression when they're prescribed SSRIs. But doubts about the serotonin model were circulating by the mid-1990s. Some researchers noticed that SSRIs often fell short of expectations and didn't improve significantly on the performance of older drugs like lithium. Here's researcher Joanna Moncrief. It has been rumored, I suppose, for many years now in the scientific research community that the evidence for the serotonin theory of depression was weak and inconsistent, but the studies didn't really stack up. By the early 2000s, few experts believed that depression is caused solely by lack of serotonin, but no one ever attempted a comprehensive evaluation of the evidence. So that's why I felt that it would be a good thing to do to get the research together in all these different areas so that we could get a view as to whether this theory was supported or not. So Moncrief organized the comprehensive study. She and her colleagues found that the theory wasn't supported, but the serotonin hypothesis still has its proponents. In October of 2022, a paper published online in Biological Psychiatry claimed to offer a concrete validation of the serotonin theory. But other researchers remained skeptical because the study looked at only 17 volunteers. Moncrief dismisses the results as statistically insignificant. Although serotonin levels don't seem to be the primary driver of depression, SSRIs show a modest improvement over placebos in clinical trials, but the mechanism behind that improvement remains elusive. John Crystal is a neuropharmacologist and chair of the psychiatry department at Yale University. Just because aspirin relieves the headache doesn't mean that aspirin deficits in the body are causing headaches. Crystal says fully understanding how SSRIs produce clinical change is still a work in progress. Speculation about the source of that benefit has spawned alternative theories about the origins of depression. 
Despite the selective in their name, some SSRIs change the relative concentrations of chemicals other than serotonin. Some clinical psychiatrists believe that one of the other compounds may be the true force inducing or relieving depression. For example, SSRIs increase the circulating levels of the amino acid tryptophan, a serotonin precursor which helps regulate sleep cycles. Over the last 15 years or so, this chemical has emerged as a strong candidate in its own right for staving off depression. A number of tryptophan depletion studies found that about two-thirds of people who have recently recovered from a depressive episode will relapse when given diets artificially low in tryptophan. People with a family history of depression also appear vulnerable to tryptophan depletion. And tryptophan has a secondary effect of raising serotonin levels in the brain. Recent evidence also suggests that both tryptophan and serotonin may contribute to the regulation of bacteria and other microbes growing in the gut. Chemical signals from these microbiota could affect mood. While the exact mechanisms linking the brain and gut are still not well understood, the connection seems to influence how the brain develops. However, because most tryptophan depletion studies so far have been small, the matter is far from settled. Michael Browning, a clinical psychiatrist at the University of Oxford, says other neurotransmitters like glutamate, which plays an essential role in memory formation, and GABA, which inhibits cells from sending messages to one another, may be involved in depression as well. It's possible that SSRIs work by tweaking the amounts of these compounds in the brain. Psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief sees the hunt for other chemical imbalances at the root of depression as akin to rebranding rather than a truly novel line of research. I would suggest that they are still subscribing to something like the serotonin hypothesis. They still have in their mind that antidepressants simply must be working. Meaning the idea that antidepressants work by reversing some chemical abnormality in the brain. Moncrief thinks instead that antidepressants modify normal brain functioning, which results in changes in our emotions or sensations that may temporarily override feelings of anxiety and despair. Not all theories of depression hinge on neurotransmitter deficiencies. Some look for culprits at the genetic level. When the first roughly complete draft sequence of the human genome was announced in 2003, it was widely hailed as the foundation of a new era in medicine. In the two decades since then, researchers have identified genes that underlie a huge spectrum of disorders, including about 200 genes that have been linked to a risk of depression. Several hundred more genes have been identified as possibly raising the risk. Here's neuropharmacologist John Crystal again. It's really important that people understand that there is a genetics of depression and that we're really striving to translate what we're learning about this much more elaborate, much more complicated ideas about the biology of depression into a new generation of treatment. Crystal says until very recently, only psychological and environmental factors were considered when it came to depression. But our knowledge of the genetics is incomplete. Crystal points out that studies of twins suggest that genetics may account for 40% of the risk of depression, yet the currently identified genes seem to explain only about 5%. 
And simply having the genes for depression doesn't necessarily guarantee that someone will become depressed. The genes also need to be activated in some way by either internal or external conditions. Srijan Sen is a neuroscientist at the University of Michigan. There's a false distinction that sometimes is drawn between environmental factors and genetic factors. The effects of the environment are just as biological as the effects of genes. They're just, the source is different. Sen's lab studies the genetic basis of depression by mapping subjects' genomes and carefully observing how individuals with different genetic profiles respond to changes in their environment. Recently, they've looked at stress brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Different genetic variations can affect whether individuals respond to certain types of stress by becoming depressed. This stress includes sleep deprivation, physical or emotional abuse, and lack of social contact. Environmental influences like stress can also sometimes give rise to epigenetic changes to a genome that affect subsequent gene expression. For example, SENS Laboratory studies epigenetic changes in the caps on the ends of chromosomes, known as telomeres, which affect cell division. Other labs look at changes in chemical tags called methylation groups that can turn genes on and off. Epigenetic changes can sometimes even be passed down through generations. Studies of these genes may someday help identify the form of treatment a patient would respond to best. Some genes may predispose an individual to better results from cognitive behavioral therapy. Other patients might fare better with an SSRI or therapeutic ketamine. Still, Sin says it's far too early to say which genes respond to which treatment. Differences in a person's genes may predispose them to depression. So, too, may differences in the neural wiring and structure of their brain. Numerous studies have shown that individuals differ in how the neurons in their brains interconnect to form functional pathways, and that those pathways influence mental health. A team led by Jonathan Repla, a psychiatry researcher at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, scanned the brains of acutely depressed volunteers and found that they differed structurally from those of a non-depressed control group. For example, people experiencing depression showed fewer connections within the white matter of the nerve fibers in their brains. But there's no white matter threshold for poor mental health. So Repla says you can't diagnose depression by scanning someone's brain. After the depressed group underwent six weeks of treatment, Repla's team ran another round of brain scans. This time, they found that the general level of neural connectivity in the depressed patients' brains had increased as their symptoms lessened. To get the increase, it didn't seem to matter what kind of treatment the patients received, so long as their mood improved. A possible explanation for this change is the phenomenon of neuroplasticity. Here's Repla. Neuroplasticity means that the brain actually is able to create new connections, to change the wiring of the brain. If depression occurs when a brain has too few interconnections or loses some, then harnessing neuroplastic effects to increase interconnectedness might help lift a person's mood. But Repla warns that another explanation for the effects his team observed is also possible. Perhaps the depressed patient's brain connections were impaired by inflammation. Chronic inflammation impedes the body's ability to heal, 
and in neural tissue, it can gradually degrade synaptic connections. The loss of such connections is thought to contribute to mood disorders. Good evidence supports this theory. Charles Nimeroff, a neuropsychiatrist at the University of Texas, Austin, says psychiatrists have evaluated populations of patients who have chronic inflammatory diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. All of them have higher than the average rates of depression. Of course, knowing that they have an incurable degenerative condition may contribute to a patient's depressed feelings, but the researchers suspect that the inflammation itself is also a factor. Medical researchers have found that inducing inflammation in certain patients can trigger depression. Interferon alpha, which is sometimes used to treat chronic hepatitis C and other conditions, causes a major inflammatory response throughout the body. It does this by flooding the immune system with proteins known as cytokines, molecules that facilitate reactions ranging from mild swelling to septic shock. The sudden influx of inflammatory cytokines leads to appetite loss, fatigue, and a slowdown in mental and physical activity, all symptoms of major depression. Patients taking interferon often report feeling suddenly, sometimes severely, depressed. If overlooked chronic inflammation is causing many people's depression, researchers still need to determine the source of that inflammation. Autoimmune disorders, bacterial infections, high stress, and certain viruses, including the virus that causes COVID-19, can all induce persistent inflammatory responses. Viral inflammation can extend directly to tissues in the brain. Devising an effective anti-inflammatory treatment for depression may depend on knowing which of these causes is at work. It's also unclear whether simply treating inflammation could be enough to alleviate depression. Clinicians are still trying to parse whether depression causes inflammation or inflammation leads to depression. Here's Nimeroff again. It's a complicated relationship, and we know that these inflammatory agents called inflammatory cytokines can enter brain where they can produce many of the signs and symptoms of depression. It's an active avenue of investigation. What's complicated about it is the sort of chicken and egg phenomenon. Does depression cause increased inflammation, or does increases in inflammation cause depression? Or are both things true? Increasingly, some scientists are pushing to reframe depression as an umbrella term for a suite of unrelated conditions, much as oncologists now think of cancer as referring to a legion of distinct but similar malignancies. And just as each cancer needs to be prevented or treated in ways relevant to its origin, treatments of depression may need to be tailored to the individual. If there are different types of depression, they may present similar symptoms, such as fatigue, apathy, appetite changes, suicidal thoughts, and insomnia or oversleeping. But they might emerge from completely different mixes of environmental and biological factors. Chemical imbalances, genes, brain structure, and inflammation could all play a role to varying degrees. Here's neuroscientist Sri John Sen again. Hopefully, well, in five years, ten years, we won't be talking about depression as a unitary thing, but that someone gets sad or spotted after, you know, breaking up with a significant other high school, that's probably a really different process than 
someone's troubling after having a stroke when they're 65 or 70. And we won't call it the same thing, and they'll have different biologies and maybe different treatments. To treat depression effectively, medical researchers may need to develop a nuanced understanding of the ways it can arise. Nemiroff expects that someday, the gold standard for care won't be just one treatment. It will be a set of diagnostic tools that can determine the best therapeutic approach to an individual patient's depression. That might be cognitive behavioral therapy, lifestyle changes, neuromodulation, avoiding genetic triggers, talk therapy, medication, or some combination of those. That prediction may frustrate some physicians and drug developers, since it's much easier to prescribe a one-size-fits-all solution. You remember Yale neuropharmacologist John Crystal. Appreciating the real complexity of depression takes us down a path that ultimately is going to be most impactful. Because we used to be ignorant about the true complexity of the biology of depression, and we were like explorers who landed on a new continent. Except they didn't realize how big that new world really was. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Joanna Thompson's full article, The Cause of Depression is Probably Not What You Think, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Explore math mysteries in the Quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press, available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. Mm-hmm.